0: Welcome to Account Trends, everybody. I'm Jason Stein with Intuit Accountants. My co-host, David Bergstein, and I are excited to be with you every couple of weeks to share the latest news, interesting perspectives, and hottest trends in the tax and accounting world. We'll have special guests on the show to help break these trends down and give you food for thought as you find new ways to deliver for your clients. But most importantly, we plan on having some fun while doing it. Welcome. Welcome back to Account Trends, everybody. Jason Stein here, your host. This week, we want to take a look back on our second season of Account Trends and do a flyover of some of our best insights. So, I hope you enjoy.
1: Look at cell phones as an example. Uh, gosh, I never thought I'd be paying thousand dollars or more. Listen, I'm a CPA and I'm a cheapskate. I never thought I'd pay more than that uh, that much money for a cell phone, but Again, it's it gives me something that I want. It gives me the ability to watch Netflix when I'm waiting in line somewhere. It gives me the ability to check my email, to communicate on screen with family members across the country. And so suddenly I'm willing to spend that money because this phone, while it also still does calls sometimes, um, it, it gives me what I want. And the same thing can be true in accounting. If we, for example, can help people improve their profits and and better understand and make decisions that allow a business owner to do that, that's real value. And so now suddenly we are getting paid for giving people what they want versus something they have to do that we drag them to.
2: They start out not exactly knowing how to transition to advisory, and then they Make that shift, and they start getting better at it, and they start feeling better about it, and they move to more regular planning throughout the year. And like you said, they're in the books. They've got cloud accounting now, so they can see the books. They're meeting quarterly. It's a great time to use that close period to review a few things, close those books so that they don't make mistakes going behind them. They get to the end of the year, and tax becomes more of just a reconciling event, and It's not the big event of bring me all your stuff. It's not being surprised by, oh, why didn't you tell me this happened? We know what's happening. We've been way in front of this planning so that the preparation and the compliance stuff becomes very small. It is not the big thing. And we've actually seen firms compress their tax season, reducing the amount of time that it takes them to do tax. I remember five years ago when firm, when I had one firm who they had all their business returns done before the March 15th deadline. And that was just amazing. I remember how much we cheered. This last year when I asked our uh, tax counsel how they were doing on their uh, returns and everything, they had all of their business returns done. Are you ready? By the end of January. By the end of January, they had all of their business activity done. They could close the books. There were no surprises. They'd been planning during the year. So they could just close it out, prepare those tax returns, and they're ready to file. That is amazing. And what happens is now you got more like 10, 11 months to focus more on planning.
0: That's one of the many types of advisory services you can offer. But why not just... I mean, what what why is that important for an accounting firm to do, Heather? Why didn't you just say, well, let me partner with an IT firm and you know, have them do that? And you could refer them because aren't they more centered around technology? Like what what made you decide this was important for accounting?
3: It's important for accounting because business intelligence comes from accounting. It comes from proper accounting processes and and clean useful accounting data. So I could build an amazing app that does all kinds of things. But if it's dumping, you know, data that is not useful and does not allow me to create or my clients to create reports that help them to run their business and and really make really sound, solid business decisions, then that app is not going to help. It's not solving any problems. It's really just creating more work. So the, the 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 thing where I you know Liz my my um, you know my business partner with Appia or my co-host we're always saying that you need the developer and you need the accountant to be working together when you're building business applications that involve your financial statements. It's just as simple as that. Because if you don't have an accounting background and you don't understand debits and credits and you know the format of our different financial reports. Then you can really mess up somebody's books by dumping data into it. So, the accountant is absolutely the right person that should be having these types of conversations with their business clients because they understand what good financials look like. They understand the type of business intelligence that their clients need um, to stay compliant and to run their business and be profitable. um, And they understand a relational database, because I, I I tell you, I think all accountants, we think like relational databases. We do, that's just how we're wired. And so when we start to think about how things are connected, it just comes naturally to accountants.
4: So then if they come back to me and they're saying that that's gonna be too high, I have had that, that's really expensive, that's more than what I thought then I'd never just bring down the price without just taking services away because you have to get so clear on what your own value is for those services that you provide. You never want to signal to the client that you think that you're not worth what you initially, like that's not negotiable. Like, okay, then you know what? Instead of every meeting every month, how about we meet once a quarter? And then that's what this will go to. You know, you're scaling back your services.
0: Yes, but what you're talking about is you're t- talking about negotiating the agreement, the the upfront, right? Yes. And so I, I I asked that question, knowing full and well what what your answer was going to be, right? <laughs> Which is your compliance clients don't like the bill right. because while they know they need you to yep. file their returns, they don't value that work. But when you have a conversation with them upfront of here's what I'm going to do, and you get them excited about yeah. working with you, yeah, you would probably. I'm at I'm taking a wild guess here, but If that same client came to you and said, I need a text return done, and you quote them, you know, $500, whatever, but then you have a different conversation with them, that same client you're having a conversation about, here's what I'm going to do year-round, and that quote's probably, what, three, four times that amount, right? And they're glad to sign up for a
4: hundred percent. In fact, those are definitely conversations I've had. Like I can name, I can, I can count just this year that there's been several conversations that I've had that went exactly like that. Like, hey, I want to talk about my relationship with Sherwood Tax. And I'm like, okay. And honestly, sometimes there's like an airing of grievances, you know, about like things took too long and you guys didn't, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then when I get give, give them the vision of like, well, what if our relationship looked like this? Then exactly what you're saying, it's like, oh, we that's a possibility. It's like, yeah. Because, yeah, when it's transactional, I mean, honestly, I feel like a lot of the dissatisfaction, putting it mildly for CPAs in our industry, comes for our job is thankless. Our clients don't even know if the product that we give them is good or not. They have no idea, you know. And so and we're getting compared with, with people who might not be giving as good of a product. But if they're cheaper or faster, then they, you know, kind of get more, uh, they kind of get Better Yelp reviews or something, you know, than than those of us that take our time take a little longer and charge more because we have more expertise. So, yeah, the only way that our clients are going to appreciate us is if they're able to connect with us on a more personal and relevant for them level.
5: But I do think seeking out somebody who can give you some perspective on um, what it's like to be a woman in the accounting industry or, or in whatever way you are approaching your work. If you're young, going into the industry and trying to get into a partnership track early, whether you're a a man or a woman or or whomever, what what we want to do is find people that can help us, give us perspective, guide us through our paths that we're going down, um, give us things that we need to be watching for, helping us to improve, um, letting us know about the blind spots that we don't see. Those are really important for us. And Just like for me, I've not run a top 10 accounting firm in the United States. But when I come in with the experiences I've had working with all of these firms, I can bring a perspective that is from the outside, that's not in their world, that really can be very beneficial. And I've been able to help a lot of firms uh, by doing that.
6: So in the grand context of human history, accounting is very young. Right. Modern accounting. Modern the way we accounting, think of it. Right. Yeah. Like right. The, I mean, we had
0: debits of accounting have been around a long time. But yeah, you're exactly right. Right. And I feel like I remember that railroad story. I I did a, a keynote for one of our V-cons, and um
6: it had it's, it,
0: there was something that had to do with um the creation of the EA designation, too, right? Or am I mixing my my history?
6: I have no idea. Like I'm I'm not an expert on this. Well, because uh, but... they
0: they needed people to be able to represent folks before the government. Mm-hmm. And there had to be like this trust factor. And so they, they established the EA designation. I don't remember exactly when that was. I'd have to go look it up. But
6: I think the thing we can say is that like all the licenses are actually relatively new, newish, right? It's only been generations. It hasn't been that many, like what, five to 10 generations, depending on how you count it. And And so I think that accounting will continue to evolve. And and part of the problem is that like this this model that was developed at the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, just doesn't fit the world we live in today. Both from an accounting standard standpoint and from just the way firms are run, the whole idea of like a partnership model, like why would that be ideal, right? And right. you see, and going back to what you were talking about with the private equity investment, we see firms pretty sizable ones like Eisner Amper, Cherry Bakert, EY either doing it or talking about splitting off their audit practice into a separate business so that they can run tax and consulting and casts all under a corporate model. And I believe my prediction, David and I like to do annual predictions, so I'm going to do mine in advance this year. <laughs> mid-year, and claim mid-year. It. Yes. mid-year prediction to is a preview. the partnership model is not competitive in a rapidly changing environment. It is by nature conservative, which is good sometimes, but bad other times. And I think that it's under threat and we're seeing more and more small firms switch off of the partnership model to a corporate model and giving employees stock options like technology companies instead of having them buy into a partnership. And just from my own experience, having worked for a company that had that, like you know, Intuit has this, right? Uh, All tech companies do this. It's kind of a standard thing. It, It really motivates people in a way that Uh, path to partnership doesn't really motivate young people anymore.
7: Give you a report at the end of the year that says, okay, once again, here's your capital gains, here's your capital losses. And then when you get into the granular things, like like I said, staking rewards, that's where you have to deeper dive and say, okay, let's either one, push back and dispute this with the IRS or, hey, just pay them It's a small amount, move on. So we're, we're kind of in work with what you have. And, you know, and be as, uh, you know, it's it's a balance between being way too loose and way too conservative. So find a, a middle balance to say what's a, uh, I would say reasonable decision we're going to make here for your crypto assets. Um, because the other thing is, I mean, there are things like um, in crypto, like long term capital gains, short term capital gains, you know, holding crypto for a year or longer, especially in some of these newer projects. That's not feasible. Some of these projects you're only in for. Couple of months, couple of weeks, some of them even a couple of days, and so it, it, the tax rules it's like crypto moves too fast. A year that project one either may not be around or two it may. But if your, your if your whole goal is to make money or invest it in the short term, then being able to um, then falling under the short ca- term capital gains, it, it makes uh, crypto trading, like I said, challenging at best.
8: Mm-hmm. A lot of times we like to say you can't niche too deeply, but you can niche too quickly. Um, and so if, if niching is a mature marketing move, uh, then you want to do it methodically because uh, really it's a risk. Uh, niching is a risk. You're basically saying, I'm going to decide to say no to almost everybody. And I'm only going to say yes to a narrow layer of a client you know industry a client base and that narrowness is um can be dangerous you can actually do it wrong uh like for example, I'll give you a story we were we were starting to niche more and more in creative digital design agencies uh more and more and I thought, well, I got to go all in right so fired everybody that wasn't in the niche <laughs> well, that happens to affect your cash flow as well and so it's like, oh it. yeah, it's a little bit so that was kind of my early niching, you know, you know ignorance. I didn't I didn't know. So so what you're going to do is uh slowly narrow into an industry over time. You can go really as deep as you want. And so as you do that, you're kind of you're attritioning out uh generalist non-niche related clients over time if you want. Um though a lot of people make a lot of firm owners may also make the mistake that if you niche you, you know internally you can only have that that client base as um you know in your client base and that's not necessarily true sometimes you'll niche you'll find people maybe 50 60 70% niched where then they have other generalist type clients and that, that that's fine too uh niching has a lot to do with putting it on your website when you're ready to do that when you're really ready to take a stand as an expert and position yourself to that market the next step is to be more formal about it and put it on your website and start marketing in a way that says out loud i am the expert come to me for this service
9: let me just tell you last year in the last 13 14 months if you will I have traveled 15,000 miles around the state of Florida. I have gone and met with as many members as possible, all the way from managing partners down to entry-level folks. And the only thing that anybody wants to talk about is talent. So on the one hand, it's it's a good thing because we're not kind of in this boat alone. Everybody's facing the same challenge. Nobody has the silver bullet kind of figured out yet. The bad thing is that it's it's gotten so acute that it's the only thing anybody wants to talk about. So. I think from the associations perspective, we play a very critical role in helping to solve for this challenge. Um, I would say associations at the state level really play three uh, primary roles. The first is in public affairs. So we talked a little bit about advocacy efforts a moment ago. From a public affairs perspective, associations really have to make sure that they are garnering campaigns that are targeted at growing awareness of the profession, really to both the public and to this next generation, this Generation Z. And that can come in a lot of different forms. It can come through things like marketing campaigns. Um, for example, you know we love what the Center for Audit Quality is doing. We can touch on that in a bit um, around their pipeline research and, and accounting plus branding campaign, kind of using that content and getting it out at the state level, um, but also encouraging advocacy efforts that will drive change to help the talent issue. So as an example, we have been playing a big role in supporting AICPA in trying to get accounting recognized as a STEM field, which would allow a lot of critical grant funding to be released in the K through 12 space Um, specifically for supporting accounting education and awareness in the middle schools and high schools and even elementary schools to just some degree. So one facet is the public affairs bucket. Um, The second bucket would be around programming. So a lot of state associations, ourselves included, will offer various types of career awareness or career development and education programs to help get folks excited about the profession. And then even once they're in the profession, continued professional development programming to keep them retained. Um, also offering a lot of scholarships through our 501c3 foundation to help um, limit those financial barriers that might exist towards either getting into the profession or staying in the profession. Um, and then the third bucket is, is to be a convener. If, if you think about the, the sort of audience that the state association plays with, right? From a state society perspective, we have relationships both with employers as well as with academia and in academia with students and with the schools and the professors.
10: You know, we are in deep conversations with the AICPA around kind of the future of risk and compliance services. The fact is like we are already seeing um, globally uh, more and more standards as companies need to comply with uh, you know various different compliance standards depending on the sectors they service, the geo the geos they service, the industries they're in, um, and yeah, we'll, what we are seeing is um, you know, we are kind of at the forefront of the RAS movement. And of course, you know, our Silicon Valley uh, investors, you know, some of the top venture funds in Silicon Valley are seeing like this massive wave of cybersecurity, privacy, and ESG risk needs. And uh, what uh, what they are seeing, uh, as well as the AICPA, is that these trust practitioners are. Uh, severely underserved by modern technology uh, or I should say legacy technology okay. uh, and in and uh, in very urgent need of modern technology that really brings the entire project lifecycle onto one platform. Thanks for another great season of Account Trends,
0: everyone. We'll be back with more soon. Thanks for listening. Please follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star review. If you want to learn more about any of the topics discussed on the show, visit intuitaccountants.com forward slash podcast. Account Trends is produced and edited by Luke Johnston. Copyright Intuit 2022.